Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling slippery. Oh. I'm in a state of ever-changing reality. And I feel like <laughs> I feel right. like today's guest is going to have a wonderful insight into this. Because one of the themes that has been running through their work since the early 1980s has been the plurality of the individual, which I think is such an interesting sort of concept, because I think so many of us believe that we know who we are, that we know what our identity is, that we know, like, the reality that we are living and, you know, the kind of fixed state of those around us, whether that be our mm. employers or our family or even our favourite colours or, you know, kind of things that you believe to be true. But in fact, yeah. they can change and we are ever changing. And I think in this period of lockdown for the past year now, pretty much, because I I think I did start in about February. I was like so paranoid. I started earlier than everyone else in the UK. But I think I've had these moments where, especially on weekends when I'm not working, that, you know, you might pour a glass of water and leave it on the side in the kitchen. And then when you come back an hour later, the light has so drastically changed that the reflections coming through that water, um, you know, suddenly looks like a different glass completely, even though it's the same glass. And I've had these moments which might seem quite strange to some of the listeners but very very poetic yeah i know but i sometimes look at the world like that and i think that's in part thanks to the art that i've been exposed to mm. and i first saw this artist's work our guest today um in about 2006 when i was 25 and i was in edinburgh touring with my band and i went to inverleaf house and saw an exhibition there and began exploring online which at the time was actually a bit harder because I think it was images weren't loading as quickly and I don't think as many people were even sharing as many images on their websites and stuff like that. Mm. But I learned a lot about a show that was happening in Zurich and also works that were in the Tate collection. And then Counter Editions did an amazing print of a kind of... Oh, I love that, The Nest. Yeah, The Nest, which has this beautiful egg repeated mm. twice. So I began to kind of slowly take in this artist's oeuvre. I've learned so much, but I think you know, partly from this artist's work and also other artists, you begin to look at the world and experience the world in a different way, you know, thanks yes. to that, the way it changes your perception. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, all the way from America, Ronnie Horn. Hi, Ronnie. Hello there. How are you today? 
Uh, well, after this last hurdle, exhausted. Yeah, I, I bet you've been um, installing. I, I hear that you had snow blizzards, like trying to stop your installation, but you fought through. <laughs> we fought through the snow, and then the COVID brought us down. Yes. And we're going to rise again on Tuesday. Wonderful. To finish, finish up, yeah. yeah. Where are you in the world right now? I'm in New York City. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I have a studio in New York City. And where, where else have you been during the lockdown? Have you been based in New York or have you been out of town? Mostly I've been up at my other studio, which is upstate New York. It's about a three-hour drive from here. Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, kind of in a natural setting. And I found it very satisfying to be settled into nature in this kind of crisis period. Absolutely. Well, it feels like nature, talking about nature, is, is a huge uh, motivation for your work and a huge recurring theme and a massive influence to your practice. It feels like the natural world and also kind of being solitary within the natural world really drives your practice forward. It seems to. I mean, it wasn't something I set out to uh, to uh, seek. I I, uh, I found myself, in a way, discovering that option, because uh, it isn't really the way I was brought up. So, and I, and I think you may know already that Iceland was the key in the lock on that one, mm. and then it uh, kind of became a bigger part of my life off island living so so growing up you had quite a a busy kind of life around you and so you you ended up seeking more solitary yeah i mean you know it's it's i'm always at the risk of over articulating the why i did things and in retrospect their whys are easy to grab but the reality at that time or the actual i don't know what it was i i think that there are a lot of reasons for me going off toward preferring solitude. And the key was probably because of this murky reality of my, my, my gender, you know, uh, which is like before I got to sexuality, I had this kind of ambivalence, which took the form of <clears throat> my gender is no one's fucking business. Uh-huh. Except that was just like a very idealistic thought, but it made a lot of sense to me. And because I was given the option to be either, at least visibly, publicly, I wanted to play that. I wanted to play the card, which was not about uh, a a kind of a sex appeal card. Which, you know, let's face it, that's a huge card to throw away when you're like seven years old or something. But I did not feel a strong connection to either gender. So I, I almost didn't have a choice. I was kind of just, I knew that I was not a mainstream, mainstream was not an option for me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think that affected my, my need to be solitary because I, I, I wouldn't say that was an easy road back then Yeah. for me. It's not in my family and definitely not in public school. Right. So, and at 19, you took yourself off to Iceland. Is that right? Um, yes, 19. That's correct. When I, well, first time I left the country, I went to, to Iceland. But why, why, why Iceland? The first place you visit when you leave America is Iceland at 19 is kind of adventurous on your own. Is, is... Well, no, I wasn't on my own. Oh. I was with my girlfriend. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. You know. <laughs> Why the did you romantic, romantic here. The plot is thickening. <laughs> the plot's thickening. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. What, but was, it was, uh, what was Iceland yeah. then? What was the pull of Iceland for both of you then? Uh, for Ditto, her mother had been there in 19, I think it was 55. Mm -hmm. And she flew over and guess who was on the plane? Bjork? William Faulkner. William Faulkner. Will wow. William Faulkner, who was picking up his Nobel Prize, and he went through oh, Iceland. No. So she took this walk with him in, in, during the the uh, stopover, and had this come. And I just, you know, and I I grew up. I always loved Faulkner. He's one of the first authors I remember having a strong connection to. Oh. And so that was that was one thing for sure, and Ditto was in on that with me. But the other thing was that I had a natural affinity for islands, and um, I think I was interested in the lack of development in Iceland. That you could go there, and uh, it, what, not everything was commercialized. The economy was so small that um, people had to take responsibility. You know. Mm -hmm. um, it was more of a socialist economy, I would say, a more functional socialist economy. There were 175,000 people back then masquerading as a country. Now it's 350 and getting larger. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it's a real gift to have a small economy. You don't have the complexities of scale and the lack of control that we all seem to have embraced recently. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I think my attraction to Iceland was really the fact of the island, that little anecdote that I told you about. Uh, I also had, and this is in this book I just published called Island Zombie. It's a short piece about growing up. Um, uh, when I was eight years old, um, JFK was assassinated. Mm -hmm. It's 1963. Well, I think it was two weeks before that or two weeks right around that time when JFK, we were watching every detail, you know, nonstop on TV of analysis, the funeral, commentary. And I was, you know, it was it made a big impression on me. But then every now and then you'd get the news, you know, like what's going on beyond this this horrific situation. Mm. And one of the things that was going on was this uh, small island off the coast of Iceland was, uh, you know, it was a, um, uh, erupting from underneath the ocean. So it was just this funnel of steam coming up from the ocean. There was, wasn't even a landmass, but this was also being watched. It was like an eyewitness account of this assassination and the eruption. And the eruption was of a, a, a volcano called Surtsey, which literally came into existence in 1963. So I, I in my, you know, memory, have those, those two images linked forever. And uh, I, I, I like to think that was part of the reason I had this early connection to Iceland. Yeah. So you were making work, you were taking photographs at the point when you went to this trip, this was like... No, no. When, no. I, when I went on this trip, uh, when I was 19, um, it was just a lark. Yeah. 
And when I got there, it was so, it was, you know, earth shattering for me. It, there was no chance I wouldn't come back, you know, and I didn't know it would become migratory, you know, and throughout my life, but I knew, and part of it was that everything at that time was so self-evident, the geology, the weather, even the architecture, everything was, you know, you could see how things came to be what they were. And I was completely enthralled by that. Wow. And that's, and you're talking about the, the architecture of nature and how that... Well, but and also, no, the indigenous architecture. Right, right, like right. you had, uh, not a lot, but you had at that time, you could see turf buildings. Uh -huh. You know, they make it and with this beautiful herringbone uh -huh. pattern how they lay the turf and build the walls, which you don't see it really except in museums now, but they used to build um, sheepfolds out of this turf style. They used to, they built uh, their homes early on. You know, that was the main building material. And wonderfully is it just gets recycled. So you, I saw the, the, the history of the, the reclamation of this period mm. of architecture. And then came the concrete, like, you know, that became the dominant uh, architecture. And of course, that doesn't get reclaimed. So you see all these abandoned homes. But that came more like in the late, mid to late 60s, I would say. And, and when did these experiences of Iceland start to come into your practice, start to influence your yeah. work? I would say... Um, not much later, because I, I was uh, graduating uh, from uh, graduate school and I was uh, lucky to get a traveling grant. And I had based my proposal on going back to Iceland. And the plan for me, since I know what, knew what Iceland was like from the one visit, I knew the best way to get around was, would be on a dirt bike because it was really cheap to run mm -hmm. a two-stroke dirt two-stroke engine it was really cheap and uh, i could really get pretty much anywhere including the interior if i was brave enough or courageous enough i don't know what the word is so that was that was my plan so i took the grant and i bought this yamaha <laughs> dirt bike and i outfitted it with a, a special gas tank for long trips oh, cool you know and I just, um, I just bulked up with, uh, you know, all of my, my, my camping equipment and I hit the road, you know. And your camera That's... and everything, your camera equipment on the back of the I bike. I did. I took it with me, but I realized that it was a mistake because it, for this visit, which was, I was hoping would be about six months, it forced me to have an agenda, to be looking a certain way at everything. And I didn't know what I was looking at, so I didn't want that agenda. So basically, I locked all my equipment in a, in a locker at the bus shelter, you know, at the bus station. And I never took any pictures from that period, really. And I don't regret it because I feel uh, I even had a grant from Polaroid. You know, Edwin Land was... Uh, a really fascinating engineer. He's the man who invented the Polaroid uh, technology. He was very interested in the arts and education. So no problem. They sent me like 500 boxes of this Polaroid shit. I had the camera from my father's pawn shop. 
And you know, Polaroid at that time, those images were permanent. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They, the black and white color, permanent. So it was really a fascinating technology. The problem was the packaging was so enormous, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so the box of of Polaroid was just it was just not tenable for me to do this on a bicycle, on, on a motorcycle. So you would. So I had to ditch that idea as well. So you just stayed, you, you were basically there in the moment, absorbing the environment. And that, I mean, that's quite a, an incredible choice. And I mean, were Polaroid and the people you got the grant from frustrated <laughs> when you came back, you were like, I've seen a lot, I've not took any pictures. You know, interestingly enough with these grants, both of them, there were no strings attached. Because wow. that's also something I'm not comfortable with, having to deliver right. to anybody but myself. To be honest, and even at the beginning of your career, you felt that strongly towards that. I, I think so. I'm too neurotic to make commitments. I think it, I get it's too stressful and it alters the course of things. So I, I reject that. But that's, that's quite an interesting lesson, though, to, to sort of have realised that you don't need to produce. You know, if if even if you were there with that objective to take photographs, say, but to actually absorb things, look, experience, because if you think about any great art it normally comes out of a life experience of living and loving and losing and mm, all mm, of those mm. things and also what was it like because you described going to Iceland as this kind of like you could see how things were made almost like you know you understood how the house was made or you you could understand all of the actual kind of practical reality of real life but isn't there this kind of like mystery and soul and you know like if I think of your your work to do with the geothermal pools for example and if you think about volcanoes this kind of like unknown like us as humans how do we comprehend this kind of extremity of nature was was that was that fascinating well i i think i think that's a really interesting commentary robert i first of all you know i say i the tra i talk about the transparency of iceland but that's not the half of it because it's it, it, the source of things is while that may be clear it's not like it's visible in the sense that the weather at that time especially was it was generally colder, it was a lot windier, and a lot wetter. So that meant that you almost could never see anything. So if I went back five times to the same thing, I'd be lucky if I got like, you know, 15 minute window to actually see what I'd been going to right. visit for right. years. And then that became fascinating to me. You know, that you go somewhere and you have uh, one idea of it and you come back and it's completely different because of the factors of what it is. Mm. And you spend your life getting to know one little supposedly finite place that turns out to be infinite. It's a sort of Emily Dickinson thing. You know, you, this idea of staying in one place to get at the whole world, which is what she, what she did, you know, in, from my point of view. Anyway. It's really interesting what you just said about looking at something at one point and then looking at it again and it's completely different because that it feels like a running theme through your practice especially i'm thinking of uh, a series um about from the thames you took photographs of the thames yes. water uh yep. which i i love because you know we're in london the, <laughs> in the uk the, and it's called the river thames for example yep. and it's part of the tate collection and it's 15 uh photographs with and they have footnotes that go through them which all reference uh, literature uh, about historically about the Thames so a lot of like uh, tragedy but other things about the mystery of water but 
what I really find amazing, which made me really think, is that you, you've developed this doubling in um, your practice, which is uh, kind of like a trademark, I guess, if I can say that about the work. But you would take a photograph of water, and then a split second later, you would take a photograph of the same section of water, and it will be completely different. Mm. And there's something about that which is fascinating. Mm. And that what you're just saying about how you go back to the same area, you migrate back to the same area every time, but you go back and you can be there and it can be completely different, even though it is the same. Yeah, I think, it, and it's also something that's very much dependent on uh, an in, a viewer's uh, disposition towards what's around them. And, as, you know, like you are the weather. Uh, I don't know if yes. you know that it's yeah. uh, from 1994, five hundred shots of the same person taken in these hot pots, the, the uh, uh, geothermal waters of Iceland, right? And I, what I got from that was here is, is a woman that I was working with for six weeks. And every time we set up, uh, there was another essence being drawn from her face. Now, whether it was because it was a sunny day or a cloudy day or it was raining and all of those things were happening. And it had this enormous influence, not only on what she looked like, but the energy she was putting out. So that really, you know, in terms of who she was that day, at least visually, was strikingly varied. So you had these, you know, a range of, of appearance in her, where, given the fact that you're kind of using the same equation, so to speak. You're going to the hot spring, you're setting up the camera, you're looking at the same person, she's in the water. And the only thing that's really changing is place and weather. You know, even our camaraderie, that was a continuity throughout, you know. So, so that was the portrait. It was a portrait as much of a place as it was of a person. And the person was again, for, uh, for example, like the Thames was, for example. To go back to the Thames, the footnotes... They, there were a lot of quotes in there, but a lot of the material was taken from the newspapers and the police reports that I was able to read. Uh, the Thames is one of the, one river at the time seemed, uh, was reported to have the largest uh, number of suicides in the world. Now, I don't know if that's true. Is all I know is it looks like yeah. it did. <laughs> Frequent so I went with it, right? Yeah, so and I noticed when I looked at when you know and I was I, I was it was a kind of a commission piece, so I, I was looking at it, the river, and I, I found found myself quite mesmerized by it. Yes. It was the darkness, it was the tidal thing, it was it was the sense that if you go in you're not coming out, you know, probably. It looked like it was a challenge. It was a wager. Can you stay out? You know, and a lot of people, I mean, I think the stories of people committing suicide also drew me even closer to the river to look at it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, all of my commentary on it, which is introduces a playful element, I think, I hope. Uh, and, and so that river became kind of a center of my attention for a couple of years. Absolutely. So, so, so let, let, just going back to... Um, you are the weather. Did you double up the photographs as well in that series? Is that something that you did 
No, I didn't. With that series, I, you know, I was working on a, a series of books called Two Place. Uh -huh. They're they're Iceland based. It's a series of right now. It's ten volumes. I started in 1990. Last one was 2011. But I, and they're based on my dialogue with with Iceland. Two place, as in the verb to place, as in the verb that a place is a changing thing. It's not a fixed entity. So that's the title. I know it's a little obscure and obnoxious in a way. Mm -hmm. Because it also looks like I'm starting to say something and it, and it ends right there. <laughs> so, so to place, uh, the first volume was a series of drawings I didn't, uh, I was in a lighthouse for six, uh, not six months, about four months in Southern Iceland, 1982. And they're just, that's, they're called Bluff Life. Like you didn't have the man. You didn't have the man. The lighthouse. It was like a disused one, was it? Or no, you... I knew it was automated. Okay, so good. You didn't have to go up there every hour and put the flashlight round, right? But I got to tell you, it was something. It was. It was really like having an inha some inha motivating force in there. Some self motivate. It was not exactly like a haunting, but you could, if you wanted to go there, you could get seriously scared. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the building would just start moving when this thing started up because it was like many tons up in the tower just grinding and grinding and i have a lot of stories about being there because uh it was really um you know when i was staying going in the tent six for that uh, 19 uh, what was it 19 uh uh 79 trip i i was so out of it i said okay i'm not even going to take anything to read you know, which for me is radical. Yes. And okay, you're in a tent, right? Whatever. But you know, you do have downtime. Anyway, I got I did wind up having to go to Reykjavik and buy a few books. But there was just this this idea. I didn't want anything between me and what was there. And of course there is a lot between me and what's there. It's called my history, really, which I'm schlepping around with me. And it's, it, it's informing everything I don't do and I do and what my fears are and what my desires are, all of that. So, you know, it was just me testing myself, I think. I needed to know who I was outside of uh, having been brought up in a context that was not, um, I, I was not an easy fit with. I needed to know who I was more stripped down on my own, you know, and I think that's why I, I did this trip. Do you feel like that's a, a constant a search for you or do you feel like you've got to the a point later on in your life where you are kind of you found where you fit I don't know if I found where I fit but I know that I'm most comfortable in my solitude than yeah. anything else you know and having said that I would say I am really uh, very very lucky with friends you know, around the world. I mean, people that uh, that I can't live without. So it's it's a solitude in the local sense, uh, but it's definitely a pleasure taken in in society when it's necessary to me. Which is basically when I travel for shows, right? Because I I've chosen not to travel for anything but business and Iceland, which is not business. It's just source. It's research muse. Iceland's my muse I would say that you know that's nice well this thing about friends then this brings me on to another body of work which is my most favorite of yours which is uh called 
the selected gifts, which is from 1974 to 2015, and it's 67 inkjet photographs of presents that you have received from friends, family, people you've worked with uh, over a period of 41 years. And then you photograph these, and some of them are from different angles. Some are doubled, some are single. But you photograph them with no hierarchy. Uh, there's no sentimentality. They're just an archive of these uh, objects that you've received. And something about it, again, really inspired me because it's you're, you're saying what makes up a human, what's left behind. And it's the things mm. we leave behind. Mm. But th this is people's projections. A present is someone's projection of what they assume they know about you that you want to receive. And yes. you've created this body yeah. of work about that. And I find that absolutely fascinating. And also it appeals to the collector in me <laughs> and the hoarder. Yes. And the archivist, because I'm suddenly like, you've hung on to these presents for 41 years and, and they are there being presented in this body of work. Can you talk a bit about that body of work? Because for me, that's like so exciting. Well, I thought of it as a kind of vicarious self-portrait. Yes. You know, and I like that. That's kind of, that tickled me to, you know, have that idea that I was uh, actually the reflection in the mirror, not the mirror. Um, and when I started, it started out actually as a little, I'd sent a little, every, uh, New Year's I send a, a little print or a pamphlet or some concept piece, a limited edition of like 152 people that I want to have a moment of contact before the new year begins, you know? So one year I sent out something called uh, My Gifts, uh, a, a selection or something like that. It was a little chapbook and it had a really list of all the things. So it was, just, it was just written. There was no visual with it. And I think when I finished that, I realized that it was a visual thing mm -hmm. and that these things were accessible to me. I guess one of the things that really grabbed me was the fact that at two very different times in my life, I was given the same book. The Book of Repulsive Women. Yes. I think that's a highlight. For, for us. He, he was Yeah, I, saw, I saw that. Yeah, the book and, by, by Joanna Barnes. Yes, exactly. Yes. And I, I didn't take it personally. I thought <laughs> it really, it was really. But brilliant. you got it twice. You still didn't take it personally. I got it twice. <laughs> and the same thing with Orlando, which was right. a little bit obvious for me, but okay. Yeah. But what's interesting is since that work was done, I was given Orlando yet again. Man. So, right? So funny. I'll probably have a collection of Orlandos before I... <laughs> yeah, it's another yeah, one. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a side work. Yeah. But wow. a lot of these gifts that were given me, like there's a, a little love letter. Yeah. This was given to me by another artist, and it's one of his works. It was kind of a conceptual piece. But there's a mystery and, to the people who... The gift givers. You, you didn't really... Yeah, I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to give the names of the... Although in some cases it's there in the in the caption because, uh, for example, uh, it's a photograph by Jurgen Teller mm -hmm. or something. It, it, it's uh, or whoever. There are some names in there, and usually, if it's self-evident in the object, I name it. Right, right, right. And did if it's not like this love letter, uh, I don't bring up the name. And do you want to keep it mysterious or would you reveal the identity? I, I don't tell people. Right. I, I don't because that's, I don't want really it going to that that level of... Intimacy. Yeah. Um, 
maybe intimacy, but maybe just um, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, even though they'll know who they are, it's a little bit like that. It's it's not gossip or it's not it's not really adding any anything conceptually to the work to say, oh, and you know, because a lot of those things are from people that are better, certainly better known than I am, but uh, you know. I, I was feeling very modest about that. Too. Did anyone really, did anyone come along and get a bit upset that their gift wasn't photographed by you as part of the collection? <laughs> like, well, where's, where's my where's my panda I gave you? Why is that not being photographed? Exactly. <laughs> well, I have found a number of gifts that I that I didn't include, but it wasn't because I edited them out. It's because I didn't remember them. Uh. Right, right, and I want right. to. I want to have an addendum now. Yes, me. another volume. Right? I want to know who got you the Flintstone figurines. Who got you an oh, octopus? Who got you? Who got you that octopus and the Flintstones? I could, you, I could give you the Flintstones because they that that is kind of historical. That was Felix Gonzalez Torres. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. Those are his toys. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot of Felix in there. Actually, I think there are two or three things. Wow. He was a gift giver. And he was someone that came, you came into his life and he came into your life at a really wonderful moment for both of you and you recognised each other's practices as mirroring each other and having a doubling as your work doubles, as his work doubles, as we know with Mm -hmm. Perfect Lovers, which is the two clocks and the uh, the empty bed with the two pillows and your practice is always about doubling. what, What was that like? to have that experience with him because he has been, a, and he's obviously a great gift giver giving you the Flintstones, but is, what was that like at both of your career paths at that moment? Well, I, I did a show in 1990 in LA. This was my first museum show at MOCA. Um, and first machine museum show in, in the United States, which is at MOCA, LA. And, I included a piece that I had actually produced in 19... I finished it in 1982, but I never had the right venue or, or setting to show this work, and so I never showed it until 1990. And that was a piece that... One of the first times I met Felix and we were sitting and talking, and he brought up the gold field, uh, which is a, this sculpture that I did and had shown at MOCA, um, it was called Forms from the Gold Field. It was just a sheet of gold laying on the ground and it was curled over at one end and it caught all of the ambient light and it it kind of ignited like it was on fire. It's it's quite spectacular if, if it's shown properly. And it's natural light or the, the gallery light. People thought that you'd lit onto it, hadn't they? But it was just refractions. Or no, it was space. natural light. Yeah. There was no artificial light in yeah. that show. That's what LA is. You know, you can really get beautiful yeah. light. Yeah. So. And I was in the temporary, well, they called it the temporary contemporary, which was the Gary add-on uh, f- first manifestation of of MoCA, right. you know. And it was all daylight. You know? It was just, uh, so so that piece was in there. And the first time I saw, I met Felix, he, he brought that experience up that he'd seen it. You know, and he, and he talked about that work and he'd seen it with his boyfriend, Ross, <clears throat> who had passed away uh, 
I'm not exactly sure what year, how long ago, but it was obviously a really traumatic thing, that loss. But he shared the viewing of the gold field with Ross. They were both there, right? So we, he would sort of triangulate me with Ross. So it was like, it was something very, very poetic and beautiful about it and organic to the way, his way of thinking. So Bross was always included in our early conversations that way. And uh, I don't know where was I going. Eventually I did the, uh, uh, the uh, gold mats paired for Ross and Felix mm -hmm. as, as a gesture back to, to, to uh, Felix. But then Felix took that work and made uh, a curtain of gold, didn't he, that was a reference in you? Yeah, he, what, he, what it was was, uh, I'm going to forget the name, Untitled La uh, Placebo Landscape for Ronnie, something like that. And it's a candy piece, gold candy spread out on the floor. Yeah. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, I can't top that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just like, wow. And, um, and then I responded with the paired gold mat. Right, right, right. But it's the, it's the seconds off thing as well, the element. Like when we talked about earlier about your photographs, it, you, you, when you look at your paired photographs, you think it's the same image, but it's actually seconds later the second image has been taken. But, it, you know, this is about what looking and looking again. And his perfect lovers, these clocks which are on the wall, they're always, as much as they're perfect, they're always, always a few seconds off. And there's some poetry in that, that much, as much as they're just like a, a man-made clock and they should be the same they're always a few seconds off and your work these photographs are always a few seconds off and you like that challenge of of making you look and look again well i think that's part of it but i i think if you look a little more closely russell you'll find that some of those pairs may be identical ah oh really okay all right I, I like looking for... It's not like you're going to have a definitive uh, aha uh -huh. with any of them because you're just going to... It just keeps you, you the, in motion. Engaged, yeah. you in play. The doubt will keep you in play. Right. The lack of ability to absolutely resolve with 100% certainty keeps you in play. That's what I want. I want you in play. I, I've always really liked that because I think it's like this kind of... Um provocation or something but there's but there's also just that openness you know to thinking because you're allowing the viewer to think and to engage actively you know with 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 the actual idea of viewing your work it's a, like I, I love the work in 2006 some um, portrait of an image where you where you photograph the French actress Isabel Huppert um, and the way that those images even though they're not doubles as such they're more like different takes um, with different facial expressions. Um, but those facial expressions kind of wouldn't have existed necessarily in the real world because they're performances she's giving. So those, those, those facial expressions only can exist either in film, you know, when she's playing the character like Russell does when, mm. in his day job of acting, um, or in, in your photography shoot, you know, if you, in, in that photography film. Can you speak a bit about that project? Because that was a work by you that really captured my imagination. Well, yeah, I, this portrait, you know, the, the portrait of an image, uh, I thought of it as um, photographing somebody that had an image that was not her, but was organic to her. So I asked Isabel effectively to 
uh, uh, impersonate herself in various roles she played. So what we did was, and this is what she wanted me to put all the roles that of hers in a hat. And she would pull out one every day and she would go into character. Wow. You know, and that's what I was photographing, you know. And uh, it was, it was a, a really fascinating experience because I, it, it became clear that she wanted to know what I wanted. And I knew what I wanted, but I didn't know what it looked like. So that was this, the position I was in. So there's a little bit of like toughness in the dynamic, but you know, I, I managed to squeak through without giving, uh, making something up because I didn't know what I was, you know. And that often is the case with me that, I'm, that I know what I want, but I don't know what it looks like. And that's partly why I'm, I move among different idioms oh. um, to get to things. You know that um, I'm drawn to. I, I it was like she was looking for the director in you as the actress. She was. Yeah. It was. It was. It's an interesting thing. You see why? You see why so many actors, actresses, and actors have have sexual relationships with directors, because there is a dominance element involved there. You know. Uh, Tell me what to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was really. I really. I I was visiting uh, a an, an, uh, writer that I, I enjoyed over the years. You may know her, Hélène Sixou. She's a, a French, uh, quite an extraordinary author and thinker. Uh, and I, I wanted them to meet because it was a little mischievous on my part because Hélène is a Jewish intellectual, right? And she's all consciousness. It's like pure consciousness. She's like all idea. And Isabel really is a deeply intuitive person, you know. And I knew Isabel was interested in Ellen. So I brought Ellen to one of Isabel's performances and then we all went to dinner and we had sea urchin. Oh, did you? You know, that was like, everybody loves sea urchin, which was really a very intimate thing, you know. So, uh, and it was a, it was really it was fun because watching the two of them talk about sea urchin the whole thing was amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, I stayed out to the side because it was just it was like when uh, I did a project with John Waters and again Ellen Sixou and and a couple of other artists, but John Waters and Ellen Sixou are like, you know, you can imagine. Well, again, this hyper intellectual and this very. Uh, He's certain, certainly not anti-intellectual, but he has got a whole different idea of intelligence and extremely effective with it. Yes. But the, the, the key really was that John is a deeply generous person oh. in spirit. So he embraces people yeah. with his humor and he opens, he, like a can of sardines, he'll open you up yeah, with yeah. his humor, you know? <laughs> and he, he's not judgmental, even though it's obvious where he comes from. Yeah. And I just love watching that too. I, I, I'm a kind of a voyeur at heart. Is, so is John a good gift giver? Did he feature in your series? Uh, well, I know what, you know, he didn't, but I'll tell you something about John. He, he has these wonderful um, Christmas cards, which are all unique, you know, that he generates through, he has he commissions friends or somebody, and, and they're always something to look forward to. So. And actually, Russ, we were gifted a few of his books by his publisher last year. 
which yeah, I loved. I mean, I thought his last book was, was extraordinary. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com You know, talking about, friends, yeah. talking about um, words, you mentioned earlier with that list of gifts... Now, I find it so interesting, your, the way that you create art, because like you were saying, there is a kind of very open dialogue between all the different mediums, because you've made things with glass, you know, photography, like installation, sculpture, and also literature plays such an important kind of, almost like a, a, a concurrent kind consistent. of consistent theme in the work. And one of the things that I really resonated with me was what you mentioned earlier, Emily Dickinson, because the poetry of Emily Dickinson had a big influence on me as a songwriter when I was in my teenage years. And I was obsessed with things like I felt a funeral in my brain and, you know, all these different poems. Um, and I loved that that sort of led to a work of aluminium word kind of text-based sculptures. Can you speak a bit mm. about those? Because I thought one of them in particular is perfect for the era we've been living through. Um, you know, everyone has had this shared experience in lockdown. You know, the one that says, um, to shut our eyes is travel. Like, I oh, yeah. love it. Um, can you speak a bit it about is. that body Beautiful. of work? And so obvious, yeah. you know, that is like... <laughs> well, this is one of the things that I love about... Dickinson and uh, what I think my my creative energy is is uh, I related to what she does in her practice because again you go back to this self evidence you know a self evident or transparent thing so when somebody says two butterflies went out at noon think well that's a fact you know which most ninety nine percent of the population of the world never took note of, you know, but and she is taking note. And that's the story. That's my connection to her, that she, that everything is fodder for her potential. Yeah. yeah, to bear witness. And I relate, yeah, and I relate strongly to that personally. Uh, and I felt when I, you know, when, when Dickinson was finally published uh, extensively, they numbered her poems. Yes, they did. Right, so she didn't, have titles. She had first lines and num there were numbers which were not hers. But anyway, you would use the first lines uh, to uh, find her po what poem you were you wanted, and they became the key and cues. So, um, uh, two butterflies went out at noon, um, or dust is the only secret. These are first lines taken from her poems, yeah. uh, from because the index is always. If, if you ever want to have a kind of a synoptic view of Emily Dickinson's work, just read the index of first lines. It's exquisite. Wow. And you can see that a lot of them are unto themselves as well. Yes. 
And, and how did that become these physical kind of manifestations in a way of, of those words? Because they're extraordinary sculptures. And that's what I find so unusual about your work is that even though everything's so different, it all feels like you. And the minute I see it, you know it's Ronnie Horn. Do you know what I mean? Even the glass sculptures yeah. or yeah. all of your yeah. work. It's, it's got a I'm always looking aesthetic. for the other one, though. I'm always yeah. going like, where's, because sometimes right. the, the water sculptures are in different rooms. I was walking and go, right, where's the other Ronnie? It's here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I've gotten the Pavlovian response out of my audience now. And every now and then I pull it away. <laughs> yeah, you're like, where but, is it? Yeah. Right, here are somewhere. 10. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Here's a group. Um, yeah. I, I, I can't say exactly. It was my desire to have those first lines uh, experienced as a view. And so I thought of a first line. Um, I'm trying to think of a good one to give you. Um, oh, God, my My flowers are near here. and foreign. That was one. Yeah, that's I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that... It was complete in itself. It didn't, you don't need the rest of the poem, but if you have the rest of the poem, you'll have another experience. Yeah. And you really go places, you know, in it, uh, or probably a good one for us is a, a, a pansy, something about a pansy and a pang. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's me, me and Rob, yeah. That's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> And maybe me on certain days, you know, um, because some people do think I'm a pans. I mean, I, they think I'm mistaken both ways. And I've always, I've never been comfortable with it, but I've always cultivated mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. because it seemed to feel, well, I, getting into the androgyny, I'm changing subjects, but it was, it was the place I was most comfortable, but it didn't make it comfortable in itself because you're always dealing with people who weren't comfortable without having a tag. You know, yeah, a, a label, too. yeah, and and it really was difficult when I was younger. But I I don't didn't have options. But going back to Dickinson, I wanted this idea of a view in a room, and it wasn't going to be descriptive. I don't get involved descriptively, not even photographically. I I don't. Um, I wanted the view in the room to be through the viewer, mm -hmm. right as opposed to like looking out at Mount Fuji, which is another idea of a view. This is one that, that you would find by looking out of yourself to look into yourself. Right. And that's the way I thought of it. Mm. So I wanted to give it objecthood that way. Uh, yeah, so the uh, interior, yeah. but in a physical form. Well, uh, to, 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 uh, to, to uh, leverage that, interior space that each viewer has right 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 you know catalyzing that yeah. through the first line okay right Do you, you know yeah, what i mean i think so uh, uh you where you get like um uh i'm trying to think of well a rat surrendered here how's that nice you know well so you know, what, where do you go with that? You're not thinking about the word rat. Once you've read it, you're in the sewer, man. Mm. You're like in some kind of place, not where you are. Well, I am. I'll tell you where I go, you know. Y you know, so that's what I mean by a view. 
And that's and about your view. moving that you. Your view. Yeah, it's like transporting yeah. the viewer. It's like it's closing your eyes. Your imagination moves you somewhere. If you're told something, you instantly yeah, go. So that's somewhere. that's how you. That's how it's a cue. That's why I call it key and cue because it cues you to something that then is a jumping point into your interior space. Yeah. So. Which so is, we touched on. Yeah. Yeah, totally beautiful. We touched on androgyny and otherness, and how much does that play into your practice? Well, I, I think it has to play all the time because it's what I live. It's my lived experience. But to be honest with you, I think all the doubling is coming out of something there yeah. uh, connected to, to uh, my personal uh, affinities. But I'm not really uh, naming it. I prefer not to name things in my practice as best I can and to keep it open-ended or ambiguous because I think it's richer and more inclusive. Mm. You know, I think the thing, the beauty of androgyny is that it is you're integrating the dif difference, not excluding it. Mm -hmm. Like you say, oh, I'm a man. Well, you're excluding everything that's not a man. And why would you do that? I mean, why would I do that? I want it all, man. I'm like a hedonist at heart. <laughs> I want everything. So that's that's how I think of it for myself. I know? think there's a body of work which really resonates with me with ambiguity is 2008 Bird, which is a series of taxidermied Icelandic birds shot from behind. Again, many yeah. of them doubled. But there's something so kind of... It plays with gender because from behind, they feel like they're... Uh, kind of uh, fluid beings that have long hair or they're wearing a cloak or they're totally. very, they, yeah. they have personalities. They're the backs yeah. of birds' heads, which we don't look at. And you're photographing yeah. them and giving them, making us bear witness to that. But they, they really challenge you because they look so human from behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them, I mean, you know... You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe some of the likenesses people have told me. Like it's it's Al Sharpton. I don't know if you know who he is, but the, he's this kind of very bombastic politician, black politician in New York politics, and um, that's the Raven, the Black Raven. Mm -hmm. But you know, yeah, there's a lot of that association, and it is kind of wonderful because it's sort of an entrance that's slightly humorous. But also, it's really just really there, baseline yeah. there. There's know? also something quite rich and luscious about them because of the, the feathers. Oh, I mean, the feathers, birds yeah. generally, like when a bird like flew into my house as a kid and it, you know, sadly hit the window and it, it you know, didn't survive. Yeah. But when my mum was taking it out of the kitchen, I remember looking at it and being like, how fragile and precious they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the kind of wondrous beauty yeah. of nature and also the tragedy of it at the same time. This kind of, yeah, yeah. something so extraordinary about plumage and. They're very sexual, and I like that too. It's like, in that way, it's confrontational, some of them, I think, because they're so phallic. But it, if you see the whole suite, it plays out quite. Oh, stunning. Quite the full range of uh, uh, possibilities there. Yeah, and, and they go within your oeuvre of the very plain white background, and the, they're photographed very yeah. starkly uh, lit. It's, it's stunning. I think also the title Bird as well kind of has a gender connotation that oh, we yeah, in the UK yeah, yeah. would call, you know, bird. Absolutely, There's yeah. something that plays into English that. English really use that word more than the Americans, but I love that idea that a bird, uh, you know, has that connotation. And most people in the States, I don't know that they get that level, that, that reading on it, but I'll tell you something about photographing bird. 
I was finished, I went to Iceland in February, which, you know, it's basically only four hours of light. <laughs> so it's kind of, and I photograph exclusively in daylight. <laughs> so oh, I really, I had to be quick on the, on the draw there. But I was looking to photo, I had, it was a certain element for a work that I did called Pie, which is a, kind of a key piece for me, which was mostly photographed up along the Arctic Circle of Iceland. But I was missing one motif, which was the mink. Uh, I had a lot of the indigenous animals of Iceland in this work, but the mink, which was an interloper, it was brought in for economic reasons and then proceeded to decimate the ecology. So I wanted this represented in this work. And I wound up finding a museum outside of Reykjavik where they had all these taxidermied animals, including minks and stuff, and they had a huge collection of the native birds. And so I thought, oh, wow, this is, you know, I wound up photographing. I would schlep these things outside the museum, and it was all, it was a white painted concrete wall, set it up on a table with the white concrete wall as a background, and photograph it in the few hours of light I had. That's the way they were photographed, so. How long did it take? Very low tech. I was there for a couple of weeks doing it every day. Wow. And do you work on digital or you do you do film? Well, at that time it was film, unfortunately. Even more preparation. You develop them yourself. Do you have your own dark room and everything you develop? Them? No, I don't. I'm, you know, I'm not really. I, I usually order out for for okay. most activities except the drawing. Yeah, the drawing I do myself. Drawing you do every day, right? This is something that you, is automatic to you. Often, yeah. Often I go through a daily process. Sometimes that's all I do. You know, right now I'm in a drawing phase, so I have a show going up, which is all drawing. Yeah, so let's talk about that, because I heard you describe drawing as breathing, like, you know, as almost like yeah. equating to, to that's how important it is to you. When I draw, I breathe, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What I'm saying there is really, for myself, that, that drawing is the one thing I, I did for many, many, many years and had no desire or need to show it to anybody. It was just about me realizing a certain continuity in my life because the, uh, the other works I did, whether they were photographic or artist books or sculptures, they're, they're really kind of concept pieces. They take a long time to develop and produce, and there's no continuity, you know? Um, with the drawing, I start in the visual and I end in the visual every step of the way. And that was something I needed for myself until they became something more than me, or I felt they were something more than me. I was willing to then show it to the public. But it, 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 it is very much for me an exercise, uh, not an exercise, but a, like a breathing, because it's, it's what gives me content. And can you talk about Log, this new major work, which you'll be showing yeah. for the first time? So I think you began that in, was it March 2019? And then it ran to yeah. May 2020, is that correct? correct. That was actually yeah, memorized. A, I don't know how I remember that, but I did. Yeah, no, no, I'm <laughs> impressed. Uh, you, can, you can do my biography, honey, <laughs> um, I, uh, what happened there? I, it was before the pandemic started and I was going upstate to work on some drawings for a new show, which was eventually postponed because mm -hmm. of the pandemic. But what I, I felt that I needed to do, or what I was moving towards, was having a daily practice, which had no, was not about being facile or having technique or 
but it was uh, very much about me and my relationship to the world. So I, I committed for a year I would do something every day. And so I said, okay, let me, the format is just like a, a piece of writing paper. So it's that size. And then whatever came to me that day, whether it was current, a current event like a black hole in the news, the first photograph of the black hole, now that just set me off wildly, uh, yeah. conceptually. With, you, know, you think about that, that, you know, distance far away is over, you know, all those things that you grew up thinking that relationship, everything was somehow automatically compressed like that. So, and that filters into other, other. if you think of them as drawings, each page. Now the drawing can include writing, and it mostly does, either formal writing, casual notations, current events, a lot about the weather, actual drawings, just visual drawings that have nothing to do with anything but me, the, very playful. Most of it is very playful. Uh, my humor is 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 in there, which is very important to me. Just just humor in general is very important to me. A lot of quotations from reading, you know. So it's got all these different elements and no rules except for that one a day or or something every day. Mm. Something could be three pages or three drawings, but every day, you know. And so when I'm traveling, it was, and it was something I could do anywhere. And there was no right or wrong to it. No yeah, it sounds rules. quite liberating in a way, doesn't it? Like it kind of, with that very simple rule, it almost takes away the pressure because there's no expectation of having to deliver something extraordinary. It's quite intimate, personal, you and your hand and your exactly. brain. It's like, it's just me and uh, we'll see what to say it's up to. Yeah. <laughs> Who, who, who do you it adds up to anything, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to, I, it felt really good to me. You're right, liberating might be the word because it was just letting it hang out, you know? It was just, uh, it is a kind of autobiographical thing or self-portrait, however. It's both visual and, and uh, language-based, so it shares. But it's autobiographical, not of, me, Ronnie Horn, doing this, doing that, it's a sensibility and what underlies my work and what kind of the the web of it, the net of my work is held, is very evident in log. Wow. You get a lot of pairing. Yeah, yes. Well, So I've got lots of things circled around for you. So we've got ice, yeah. big circle, water, big circle, drawing, big circle, doubling, repetition, literature, the motorcycle feels like it's been a big thing for you. But then I've also got circled Missy Elliott. Yes. Yeah, Missy Elliott. Yeah, she's a big thing for me. I just, it's like Aretha Franklin. You know, there are certain voices and persona out there in the public that are inimitable. They're just quite unique. So, and uh, I have to say, black women have had more influence on me than just about any one thing. Uh, the energy they put out in the world, their their uh, creative achievements, and certainly in literature and in in music, especially. But mm. now in politics, I'm blown away by <laughs> the strongest voices in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I'm uh, Missy Elliott is quite, uh, I think, quite unique, even in the re- in that culture that she is working exactly. within, and 
Yeah. And and you, yeah, there was so. an exhibition in Seoul in South Korea um, called Remembered Words, and that is linked to your drawing practice. And it was actually the first time you showed that whole uh, series of that that work, which references Missy Elliott, The Supremes, and it has kind of watercolour with yeah. words. Can you talk a bit about that specific yeah. thing? Because we'll, we'll post images of that on our Instagram, because I love that series. It's just this, this uh, arbitrary nature of language, you know. Um, associating, um, oh, you know what, kiddo, what you, what I need to turn you on to, I would love to share with you. And if I get your address, I'll send you a copy of something called, um, remembered words, a specimen concordance, uh -huh. which is the concordance of all the drawings without the drawings, just the words. Meaning, if you think about remembered words where I'm just sitting there pulling words out of my head, these are the things that come to me. Sometimes they come to me a hundred times. Sometimes they only come once in all the drawings. Not a hundred times, but, you know, a dozen times, let's say. So, and once I alphabetized them, I just thought, oh, Jesus, this is, <laughs> it's hysterical, number one, because of some of the word slippage, you know, the the... I mean, I could read to you from it. I think you'll oh, enjoy it. Wonder, have you got it there? Yeah, we'd love that. Yes, please. Yeah, this is like Here's the so book. Wow. <laughs> it's this little... Uh, oh, please. Can you see it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so is that published around um, the same time? Like 2018? Yeah, maybe 20... Yeah, 2018. That's about right, I think. So here you go. Here, uh, This is the cover, you know, which is a section of the book. You've got... Um, Let's start with miscegenation, miserable, misfit, miss, Miss Piggy, Mississippi, Mrs. Elliot, Missy Elliot, Mr. Tibbs, Mysterioso, Misty, MIT, Mitigate, Miter, Mit, Mitzvah, and on and so on. Uh, how about Mr. Clean, Mr. Klein, which is the film, that's a fantastic film, that Mr. Magoo, Mr. Potato Head, Mount Terror, Mumbo Jumbo, Murmuration, Murphy, as in Beckett, Murphy Bed, Murphy's Law, you know, you just air all the different elements of here's Crazy Cat and Kreutzer Sonata on the back. The lady from Shanghai and Lagavulin. Lake Baikal and Lake Placid. Leave it to Beaver and Leaves of Grass. Lee Marvin, The Left Hand of Darkness, Leftovers. I can go on, man. It's a, it's an 80-page book of, you can see that it's listed. I actually give the number of incidences that occur. I give the misspellings. There's a lot of the words let's are Let's do all 80 pages now, Ronnie. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to do that. It's just funny you were asking me because I definitely have an interest to do that. To make yeah. like an audio do a performance where It would be amazing. Or yeah. exact, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the and the audience can walk in and out and have this background, like white noise of the language. I've got some like memory of like it. a song that has murmuration in it or murmuration or something. Like a, I don't know who that is. Is it you saying saying water? 
Is it that one? Ronnie Horn saying water? Yeah, yeah saying water, yeah. that's yeah. That I would call a performance. And, that was a monologue, I, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I'd love to do this as a monologue. You know? Let's make it yeah. happen. Come and do it in no, London. you've said it. Well, let's it talk happen. about... <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about the UK, but London especially. And we're in the UK now. And I love the fact that you have had such an affinity. Like this, that you talking water was written while you were staying in that one-bedroom hotel that was on top of the Queen yes. Elizabeth Hall in London. Love that story. You used that. The Thames, obviously, oh, yeah, is a big yeah, influence. Yeah. How, how much has London uh, played into you personally and your work? Or the UK in general? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure it has really that much. I, I, obviously the water thing, but also I did do something for the BBC, which was Weather Reports You. I don't know if you know that work. No. It's, it, it's a book that I published, which was part of Library of Water up in, in mm -hmm. Iceland. Uh, Library of Water is the uh, collection of glacial waters from throughout Iceland. That was, what, is a building that was opened in 2007 with Art yes, Angel. exactly. You know, Art Angel's been a big presence in my life, James Lingwood especially. Yeah. He asked me to do the first international uh, collaboration, and we did this in Iceland Library. And they did a trip, didn't they? They took and, a load of like collectors and art fans over yeah, from the UK oh, to yeah, Iceland to see the Library of Water. I was invited on it, and sadly I was away at the time, and I couldn't... Um, be there but i remember james lingwood mentioned you it. missed it baby we have the best musicians at those open houses you know the icelandic seems yeah. amazing for music and we have amazing we've had amazing uh you know one-off concerts for like 40 people i don't know what you fit amazing. in there but they're all situated among these floor-to-ceiling water columns and some of the columns contain water from glaciers that no longer exist which is kind of intense yeah. to think about now. But um, so one part of this was it's a community center with this collection of water in it. But then the other part of it was uh, weather reports you, which was going out and collecting, getting people to talk about their life in the weather, you know, and people had all kinds of wonderful stories or just psychological connections to the weather that they were quite talkative about you had to edit pretty heavily you know mm -hmm. but um so i i i did a book which is called weather reports you and it's a collection of maybe a hundred of these these um and they're not interviews they're they're edited so they're just a, an individual speaking each individual an oral history in a way of the weather and actually i included a fair number of them in island zombie this new princeton university book um so you can even get an, an idea i think the the original artist book is out of print or i'm told it is i don't know but so you can get a little bit of it from from island zombie uh and those profiles when i went i, I tried to do it in japan wasn't an option because the japanese are, have a level of reticence about everything even the weather is not small talk. There is nothing that's small talk in Iceland. I mean, in Japan. In Iceland, they're very stoic, but they eventually talk about it. And it's quite clear how profoundly it shapes their lives. You go to England, and obviously weather is huge, you know, right. uh, but in a very, very different way. It's, it's more like, not a complaint, but a, 
it's a complaint. An, obst <laughs> an obstacle, an obstacle yeah. to deal with mostly. And so I did, it was a very short BBC thing where we, we uh, had a number of journalists go out and, and pull, pull these interviews from, I can't remember what part of, of, of England we chose. It, it was quite a while ago. But I, and that was oral, so it was just a recording for BBC Radio, and I was quite happy with that. I never got any feedback, but I, I enjoyed that. Cool. Very different range. And I like the way it becomes a kind of collective uh, portrait of a place. You know? It's a good one as well, because in England I, it's always actually, like, oh, it's raining today. Oh, it was so cold yesterday. Oh, it's, great. Oh, it's, it's so hot. Oh, it's, beautiful it's never day, good. Yeah. It's always like there's a problem. With the weather. Mm -hmm. I look at, when I'm in England, I do notice that the quality of the light and the weather are very, very moving to me. And I love it, you know? So, but I don't have to live there, you know? Yeah. So, it's no. easy to Sometimes, when, we, when, it, when it gets it right, it is pretty powerful, the United Kingdom. So, every guest that comes on, we ask uh, them all the same two questions at the end. And the first one is, Ronnie, if you could do an art heist, if you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? Oh, God, that's, that's an interesting variation on a very obnoxious question. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm always no, I'm always terrified by this because there just is so much I'd want to take. Because you're right, you, you <laughs> seem like a collector at heart, Ronnie. You seem like you're someone who do you collect art? No, not really. I have art, but I wouldn't call myself a collector. But you know, Russell, I think that in the work there are a lot of collections of things. So I, yes. in some sense, yeah, you're an I archivist. Yeah, something there. Yeah, but with like the gift piece that that, that is, and and the remembered words. So. I think there is a lot of collecting going on, but it's not really so much objects and things. Um, what would I, what would I, maybe a room full of cycladic objects? Okay. Or uh, the Codex by Leonardo da Vinci. What, what are those, um, the Codex? What are those? The, the drawings of... Uh, depending, there are a few, that, uh, depending on, uh, uh, like, water turbulence... Or uh, cloud studies, you know, things like wow. that. Wow. I love those drawings. Just absolutely love them. I... <sighs> she might, but I know that Bill Gates bought it for Microsoft because he wanted to. One of them he did buy and try to make digitize them and make them, you know, commercial, commercially available. Yeah, well... What well, was one idea anyway? Uh, I uh, I'm a big fan of the Turner uh, Cloud Studies, you know yeah, those great. and the Constable Cloud Studies. Uh, I find because it, it sits right at the juncture of abstraction and depiction, really, mm. and and that's where I really find myself um, kind of gravitating towards. But you know, having said that, then I I wouldn't mind a, a wall of soutine. Drawings by Van Gogh. Uh, they're all drawings, Ronnie. Everything you're you're pulling on is drawings. Apart from the objects at the beginning, they they feel like they're you're very drawn to sketches. I am drawn to drawings, but Soutine is really painting, but they're right. drawings in my mind. But drawing is a much more encompassing form for me than for most people. I think it's not it's not works on paper. I mean that's just one thing. 
Um, I think of all my work primarily as drawing, you know, even the photo photography, Ed editing and, and uh, composing. There's a lot of drawing activity in these, in these processes, you know, they're basically a di It's basically a dialectic interaction with something mm. to draw out, to take aim, to metamorphose. All of these things are really uh, definitions of drawing. So I, 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 I've kind of thought of myself mainly uh, as someone who draws, you know, even when I write. So, so what's the other obnoxious question? <laughs> this is a really obnoxious one, which I wouldn't mind actually asking you about your own work because I feel like, the, anyway, I'll ask you the question first. The question is, uh, what is your favorite color? And oh, yeah, the addendum yeah. to that is just your work has such an interesting use of color, yeah. like generally. And I'm quite interested to quickly explore that. I know we've been talking for a long time, but um, if you think about your glass work, for example, even the amber ones, like just the fascination and the, the, there's such a consistency of color throughout your work, which is extraordinary, I think. Well, you know, in glass, color is uh, at its best because it's half light. You know, and in most experiences of color, you're dealing with reflected light, not transmitted light. So it's a, the light inhabits the color. And so you're going to have a very, very different experience of color in glass, not in plastic or as we say, resin, yeah. you know, for example, in glass, you know, um, in my drawings, it's almost irrelevant. I just sort of with with big pigment drawings, I just am using color based on the mechanical properties of the pigment I'm working with. Uh, so like cadmium is, is very adhesive and it's very, um, it forms a thick paste very easily um, versus let's say the ultramarine colors. They're very thin and very difficult to work with without a, without a binder. You know, more like the Eve Eve Klein way of Pigment. just the mm -hmm. pureness of the blue. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that, there, I'm not really paying so much attention to the actual color, but I am. You're right, Robert. Color really, but the problem is that what you're observing is interesting. My interesting use of color is because I can't distinguish hierarchically between them, because when a color is used properly, it's brilliant, and even if Let's just say like a lemon yellow would be one of my least favorite colors. Let's say I don't want to paint my bedroom in lemon yellow. But I've seen lemon yellow used where it was just like you cannot use another. It's perfect and brilliant. And I love it. You know what I mean? It's really about context color. But um, also I love the cultural specificity of color. Like you get Fujichrome, Kodachrome, Agfa from Germany, Ilford from England, the color range is completely different. You know, like Fuji mm -hmm. is very high saturated. You see it in, in Asian printing as well. They tend to saturate, you know, color very, and they want contrast and clarity. Whereas let's say the Dutch and the English, it's much more, there's more presence about the color. It's not about graphics, not at all. And you see, especially with the Dutch, they're very, they're quieter tonal, much quieter tonal range. The Russians are all like, oh, that's the color from like 1930. And they just keep 1930 as contemporary color. They carry it forward in all the printing I've seen. 
it's it is a fascinating thing to see how culturally specific kodak is into flesh color now that means obviously caucasian 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 and they would balance the chemistry so that white flesh tone which is extremely yeah, I read difficult really new york times article about that and almost like the racism within it somehow or this it was a really with the assumptions article. that were you know they did it with yes. band-aids too you know yeah. like uh, uh, totally. you know, ballet shoes sk- and- skin colored band-aids you know (laughs) that kind of thing uh but but with kodak that that also the software ruins uh the chance of photographing somebody's face it limits the range you have to get rid of those that, that those algorithms so you can get whatever the sunlight's doing with them and not what the culture wants to see in it wow so yeah you you know you often look better than you really look in a Kodak photograph. <laughs> right. It's got nothing to do with you. <laughs> <laughs> the chemicals. Yeah. Oh, Ronnie. Yeah. So what? if you had to pick one color over all others, it obviously wouldn't be lemon yellow for you, but is there one or can you not do that? Well, uh, I can't because when I think, oh, Prussian green, Mm-hmm. I know I'm thinking about a color in an oil set I had when I was a kid. You know, who the fuck knows what Prussian green is? Maybe Naples yellow. It's this kind of chalky white yellow that just is very moody, you know, mm. and neutral. I like that. I never had either of those answers, so no, I'll great. take both. T- talking about the then and now, <laughs> and you just sent back to your like having childhood uh, paints, but. How do you feel about the world we're in now? And you talked about when you were younger and, and struggling with identity and in the mainstream and where you fit in society. How do you feel about the world we're in now and kids growing up and being in the same position that you were in then? Do you think the world's a better, more open, welcoming place? Are you inspired by how it is? Or do you find it still for yourself and looking down, looking around at other people, it's difficult still? I'm very much of a pragmatist that way. What I see is an overpopulated world and people are getting overall nastier and nastier. So because of the competitive aspects of things, you know, space, uh, the, uh, you know, having space for yourself is a luxury now, you know, yes. or, or, um, f- you know, never forget about food sources and clean water, clean air. I mean, they're all endangered, but I think, the overpopulation has limited uh, the possibility of our becoming more humane, which is we were sort of on that path for a while. And then things seemed to, it seemed like entropy was really catching up with us linguistically. It was like, it's almost like language doesn't work anymore. If, if you watch what goes on in, in the States, I don't know, the politics are so uh, divisive, so toxic, so unbridgeable. Um, and I think, obviously, you guys in England have been through a hell of a lot with this Brexit thing, which was like Russia's fantasy of how to destroy you. In my mind, that's what was really going on. Even though I know a lot of people voted, you had this, frankly, an idiot, this guy Cameron, come in and think that this was uh, something to throw out to the people to make a decision about when, of course, they didn't know what they were really voting on. It's like calling... Um, you know, people who think Obamacare is socialist and they're getting it and they're down on it, but they need it. 
you know, mm-hmm. and they're criticizing it, but they don't even know where it comes from. And it's the same thing with Brexit. You know, so many of the qualities of England came through the uh, the free movement. I, I, obviously, there are, are problems with it, too. There's, there's no question. Uh, but let's say a better leadership could have emphasized other things than the leaders we have had and where they, they have brought people who need leaders. Most people seem to be, need to be herded, from what I can tell, watching the whole phenomenon around Trump and the Republicans and all of this. It's very shocking to me the level of discourse is, is so, so abysmal. And without care for difference, people who are different, you know, or respect for people who are different. So to be honest with you, I, I don't feel we're in a better place. Mm-hmm. And the scale is is uh, so enormous and complexity. And there seem to be some some never ending themes about power and tyranny uh, that have not changed one iota. And, you know, then I guess on the flip side. Hopefully there are still positive people like hopefully the three of us in this room, in this imaginary room right now where we're all connected. But I do believe in the power of art as well. Mm. Um, I know some people don't think it has that power, but I do still. And actually there's a phrase in your current show, which is about to open at Hauser and Worth, which says, I am paralyzed with hope. And I loved that, that phrase. I thought it was, um, it really resonated. And I think it's a beautiful kind of thought to, end this conversation on plus there's another thing i took out of one of the drawings which was elvis has left the building (laughs) correct and that is a fact it's like two butterflies went out at noon but let me end with one thought because i feel so uncomfortable about this i i am paralyzed with hope is a drawing that recurs in log there are six variations This is a quote from Maria Bamford, who's a stand-up comedian. And somehow that got left out of the photograph uh, of the press image. And so, yes, they're my drawings, but the quote is Maria Bamford's. That's very important to me. She's really kind of a radical um, comedian who is bipolar, and she riffs on this reality. It's really quite good. So... Yeah, I stole that from her. Yeah. <laughs> to set the record straight, yeah, cool. Yeah, no, I, I can't, I, that freaks but me But also, out. you've introduced it to a whole new audience, so mm, you've given mm. it a platform. You're sharing her thoughts. No, it's my, and I, crediting I, I them, picked which it, is baby. Correct. You know, I'm, I'm a good curator. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> you selected it. You yeah. Listen, you guys have been oh, so lovely to share with. Thank uh, you You really so bring much. out the best, in, in certainly in me, but... Imagine you've been incredibly generous and open with us and I yeah. can't thank you enough when you know earlier when you cut out briefly I was just like Russell I think I'm in love like I love you yeah. <laughs> amazing I was going through withdrawal too and I love your work as well but I, I had no idea like um you know who you would yeah. be because I've never even met you or anything but it's just mm. such a wonderful thing to meet yeah. you thank you way. guys and thank you so much and I really hope we do one day I get would to love that meet I mean I world. would really love that yeah <laughs> yeah so. Yeah. Well, for all images we've awesome. talked about today, please go on the Talk Art Instagram. Uh, Ronnie, do you have social media? Are you on Instagram? I'm not personally, but I hear there are some things out there through other people. But yeah, yeah. we can check your hashtag. They can find you on Instagram, and you can yeah, and think, you can go to yeah. at, at Houserworth. I think okay, Houserworth. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. But stick stick around, and uh, we'll talk to you after we've come off air. But thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time, and thanks, Ronnie. 
Okay. We'll be back very okay, soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com